Uh, now we'll turn our hearts to God's Word, particularly. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews in chapter 12 if you'd like to read with me. And as you turn there, would you please pray with me? Uh, Lord, it is one of the many evidences of your love to us that you have given your word to us. You have spoken to us. This is a great grace so that we would know you and know what is good and right and true. Lord, by your love now, would you help us to listen here? Would you shape us here? Guide us, please, by your spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, we'll begin here uh, in verse 10, which will clip the end of where we were last week. Uh, but begin in first, verse 10 and read here a number of verses. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, that is God, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of God. Now, Let's take stock here of where we are. Last time, you may remember if you were with us here, we looked at the Lord's discipline toward the Christian. And his discipline toward the Christian is not only because we do wrong things, although we all know we do. The Lord's discipline is part of his equipping us to endure by faith. It is part of his helping us to run the race of faith that he has set before us. And even though it is sometimes painful, the Lord disciplines us for our good, he says. 
So as we submit to his discipline, we see growing in our lives the fruit of peace, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of healing. We want the Lord to work those things in us. One of the other fruits, one of the main fruits here mentioned as part of his good discipline, we have saved to talk about until now because the author here expands on it. The fruit of discipline that we'll focus on this morning is holiness. Holiness. That is to be set apart to do and to be what is right. You can see it here in verse 10. Let me read it again. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. So the driving question for us this morning is, what does that mean? What does it look like for us to share in his holiness? And that's a critical question for us to wrestle with. You'll see the stakes of this mentioned here that we see in this section that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, we may have failed to obtain God's grace. Without holiness, we may even be rejected and find no chance to repent. These are high stakes. That means that holiness here is not just an optional extra in the race of life. Holiness is not like chrome rims on the car. It's not like the luggage rack on the roof. Without it, there is no car. It is like the engine that runs the car. Without holiness, it's just a shell of a car, or we might say a poser or a hypocrite of a car. Now, having said this, knowing that we're going to wrestle with holiness in our lives. Some of us at this point, if you've been a Christian for a while and you know the true depths of our sin and the true depths of God's grace, might be thinking that you know where this sermon is headed, that it's going to go something like this. We need to be holy, but we can't be holy because we're full of sin. Jesus died to save us from sin, Now isn't that great? Clap, clap, clap. Amen, amen. You're a Presbyterian, so I guess, you know, maybe a nod if we get really uh, wound up about it. But there is some truth in that, a good amount of truth, and it might even sound good to put things that way. We need to be holy. We can't be holy because of sin. So Christ died to take away our sin. But that on its own does not, does not actually honor Jesus. And it doesn't actually listen to what God is telling us here in his word. 
if we look and listen closely to the way that the author describes how we're to relate to holiness here, he doesn't just say, you can't do it. Look in verse 14. He says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for holiness, or some translations translate it, pursue holiness, make every effort toward holiness. And this is no surprise to us. We know that this is a race that we're running after all. This is not just the Jesus ride at Disneyland. So we're to strive after holiness. Now, some people then might be thinking, okay, wait a minute now, preacher. If we're to strive for holiness, is this sermon just going to tell me, get after it? Get off your couch, get off your pew, and and go and chase you down some holiness. No, that would not honor Christ either. There's a lot going on here, more than just these things. So we need to watch where we're running. Open our eyes as we go, because there are several potholes in the road here that are not in line with the truth of the gospel of Jesus. And if we're not careful to watch, we might step in these potholes and twist our ankles. So let's look carefully as we go here. If we look carefully, especially in verses 14 and 15, we can see that the ideas of peace and holiness and grace in this section are all connected. Peace, holiness, and grace. And we know, in particular, that the grace of God cannot be earned. The grace of God cannot be earned. We cannot work to get grace. If we begin to work for grace, it becomes a wage. It becomes something due to us. It actually ceases to be grace at all. You know the famous verse in Ephesians 4, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. The nature of grace is that it is a gift that is given. Grace is a gift that is given. That's what makes it grace. And the particular grace that's given is stunning. We know that the author's main message in the whole book of Hebrews, we've summed it up in three words, Jesus is better. It's the main message of the book of Hebrews, Jesus is better. And the author spent uh, three chapters to show a particular way that Jesus is better, that he's a, a better high priest. He's not like the Old Testament high priests who would make sacrifices again and again, but Jesus, the high priest, makes a sacrifice for sins once for all time. The sacrifice of Jesus, then, is not by the blood of goats and bulls. The sacrifice of Christ is his own blood to take away sin. His blood is better and makes sin finished. Jesus himself is the offering. Jesus himself is the gift. 
Jesus himself is the grace. He gave himself for us. And there is nothing we could have done to earn it. So let me try to be as clear as I can. Any approach to holiness that misses the grace of Jesus misses the whole thing. The grace of Jesus is at the very root of holiness. We cannot go without his grace. If we do, that's a pothole. But we also cannot park at that grace either. That's also a pothole. We cannot go without grace, but we also cannot stop at grace. The author talks about this back in chapter 4. In the very last verse, verse 16, he says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Did you catch it? To find grace to help in time of need. In other words, God is the source of grace, but grace is also not the end goal. There is grace to help us for a particular need. Grace is to move something in us. It's more than just to make us clap, say amen, say isn't Jesus great, although we want those things. The grace of Christ here is stirring in us things like trust, things like hope, and things like holiness. So in the words of Paul, he says he's a, it's a call to us that we would not receive the grace of Christ in vain. Don't receive his grace in vain. Otherwise, it ends up being just a buried treasure. It reminds me, this in some ways, of those uh, picker TV shows. You know what I'm talking about? Where they kind of rummage through these old barns and things, and there's uh, junkyards, and they, they end up finding these stunning things. Every, so, sometimes it's even huge things. Sometimes they'll go into a big shop and dig through, and under this pile of rubble, there's like a Shelby Mustang. And it's just gorgeous, but covered uh, in, in things and wood and, and dust. And usually the owner was full of intentions at one point that they would do something with the car. And yet here it is. And when I see that, a part of me just, ah, it just aches in some ways. It seems like what a waste of a treasure. You know, you've got to even wonder, is it a real treasure at all if it just lies there buried? If it never sees the light of day? If it's under a pile of dust its whole life? You know, that's how the world often sees people who call themselves Christians. 
they see us sometimes as ones who say we have a great treasure in Jesus, but our lives look like a, a cluttered garage, maybe with a, a plaque that has a scripture verse on it. They hear us say that the grace of God and his forgiveness is so valuable to us, and yet it's not leading us to strive for holiness. They see Christians who are quite content to be sour, selfish, and superficial. Christians who are content to live by fear and control and guilt. Christians who are mostly concerned about taking care of me and mine first. Christians who are so busy nitpicking the specks in other people's eyes that we are totally blind to the log in our own? Do we think that this honors the name of our Lord Jesus? Do we think that this shows that Christ is better? Do we think that this will draw other people to Jesus as the great Savior of sinners? Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, you may not actually know the Lord. Sin may still be your master. This is a very serious warning to us. It's not a threat. It's just a reality check. If sin is your master, you will still strive for lots of things, but holiness will not be one of them. The honor of Jesus will not be one of them. But if Christ is your master, a good master who gives of himself, if Christ is your master, he will bring you to strive for holiness, for your good and for his glory. Now, listen to me here. As we strive for holiness, do not, do not let yourself be discouraged or afraid if you find that your striving for holiness is a struggle. I mean, there's a reason it's why it's described as striving. There's a strain toward it. It is a struggle. If it stops feeling like a strain toward holiness, it's probably not because you've become holy, but because you've just made peace with your sin and become accustomed to it. It is very normal and good even to feel like it's a strain toward holiness. Also, do not become discouraged or afraid when you look at other people's holiness. They're on their leg of the race. You are on yours. This is not a competition to win and try to see who is holier than thou. Also, do not let yourself become discouraged or afraid when you look back at your own past either distantly or recently. It is difficult for us to self-assess ourselves truly, to see what's really going on in our lives. 
Even if we could, we would still see a path of our lives that looks wiggly. It is not always a steady climb toward holiness. There will be, will be lots of setbacks, so don't be discouraged or afraid if you see them. What you really need to ask yourself is this question. Do you desire today? Do you desire today to strive for the holiness of God without which no one will see the Lord? Do you desire today to strive for the holiness of God without which no one will see the Lord? If so, if that's true of you, I have good news. Jesus is at work in you. Christ is at work in you. This is a mark of Christ's grace shaping you. So cultivate that desire. Put that God-given desire to work. Don't just let it be discovered by a picker digging around in your garage looking for buried treasure. No, take that treasure and breathe life into it. Strive for holiness now by his grace. There are lots of ways, lots of ways, that this could be expressed in our individual lives. And as I talk about these things now, perhaps even particular areas of your own life come to mind as areas in which you in particular need to strive for holiness by God's grace. If that's digging in your mind, good, hang on to that. I trust that the Spirit is working and I don't want to detract from that. But I also want to point out to us that the author here gives us three specific areas, three specific enemies of holiness that we all need to consider because they affect us all. So in the rest of our time, let's look at those three areas so that we can push against, and I'll encourage you to latch on to one of these and take it home with you. The first enemy here, the first enemy of our holiness is in verse 15. The first enemy is a root of bitterness. Root of bitterness. In my particular translation of the Bible here, the phrase root of bitterness is set aside in quotation marks. Uh, and the reason why it's listed that way, quoted that way, is because many think that the author here is referring to a particular phrase back in Deuteronomy. The reference there of this root of bitterness is idolatry, that the people there had begun to pursue other gods. And perhaps the author does have this particular idea in mind, that there's idolatry woven into this. But I also think he's referring to bitterness just generally, broadly. Bitterness in the sense of the subtle sense of resentment. This thing that scripture often connects to things like anger and slander and malice. And it's interesting here that this bitterness is described as a root. 
as something that's beneath the surface, sort of like the iceberg that's under the water until it's, that we cannot see until it's too late and the boat is heading right for it. So you may be nursing a root of bitterness even now and not even realize it. You may have grown bitter toward parents, a spouse, maybe your kids. You may have grown bitter toward a particular political party or political figure or more personally, someone you know that's of a particular political affiliation. You may have grown bitter toward that one person who just always gets under your skin. You may have even grown bitter toward the church or to God. And I know that in some of these situations, these people may have hurt you. And that hurt may be very real, even very deep. But let me tell you, do not allow that root of bitterness to grow. If you do, it will do you no good. The root of bitterness is a poison, both to you and to the people around you. You'll notice, he says, that when it springs up, it causes trouble and many are defiled. Not just you, many around you are affected by this. So by the powerful grace of Jesus, strive for holiness in this area, to put aside the root of bitterness in you. That's the first enemy of our holiness. Here's the second. The second enemy of our holiness listed here is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. We know sex in the Bible has a good place, a right place within marriage. Here we're talking about everything outside of that, not just matters of, if I can say, intercourse, but everything related to or connected to sex. And we know that our culture has seen some huge shifts, even just in one generation, about our views of sex. All you have to do is pick up a magazine and look at the cover or maybe even the subjects that they'll be talking about to know about this. But the church even, sadly, has sometimes followed the cultural tide instead of listening to the scripture. We have bought as a church, sometimes even sold the lies that sex is just harmless fun or that sex is fine as long as there's love and consent, or that sex is just part of a desire over which we have no control at all, or that sex is really nobody's business but yours as long as you keep it to your own mind in your own bedroom. The Bible has a much higher view of our sexual lives it's actually part of God's will for us. First Thessalonians, let me read just a few verses here. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. The author says this, For this is the will of God, 
your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God, that no one would transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. To allow sexual immorality to go unrestrained in you is poison. But you are not just a hopeless swimmer in the tides of the ocean here. So by Christ's powerful grace, strive for holiness in this area to put away the sexual immorality in you. Third, third and final enemy of holiness. The third enemy of holiness is cheapening blessing. Cheapening blessing. The phrase here in verse 16 is described as being unholy like Esau. But many of us know what's going on in that account. So Esau and Jacob are twins, but Esau was just minutes older than Jacob, and I bet he never let his brother forget it because, you know, I'm a little older than you. But even more than just the elbow jabs, this actually, as an eldest son in that culture, brings a birthright to Esau that his birthright gave him the larger share of land, of the family name, and of the family blessing. I suppose I could retell some of the story. Let me just read it. It's a few verses in uh, Genesis chapter 25, verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was Edom. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. And so he swore to him. And Esau sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. He despised his birthright. He cheapened his blessing. The gift of his birthright was not enough because I am hungry now. And we hear this. We look at this and go, what a fool Esau is. I mean, who would be so blind as to do that? Doesn't he see that he's throwing all of this away? It is crazy. It is crazy. Sin is craziness. And yet, how many of us do the same thing in cheapening Christ's blessing? Christ has given you the grace of his gift, but we know it is often not enough for us. Because I'm hungry now. Because I need encouragement now. Because I need a job now, because I need my health healed now, because I need my roof fixed now, because I need to feel loved now. I feel a rumble in my tummy, 
and I'd be willing to sell the grace of Christ for a cup of today's soup. I think we know in our hearts that this will do us no good. This attitude is an enemy of holiness. So by the powerful grace of Jesus, strive for holiness in this area and don't allow yourself to cheapen the blessing that Jesus has given to you. All of these things, our pursuit of holiness here is not just about being good. It is not just about staying in line so you can get good things. We believe, we believe that Jesus is really better. We believe that Jesus is better, that his grace is better, and that his holiness is better. Jesus has given you his grace so that you will share in his holiness and see the Lord. So don't waste it. Would you pray with me? Lord, we praise you and trust you in these things that now that we have been set free by your grace, your grace produces your holiness in us. We know that none of this comes by our own strength, but it is your power to your glory, to your honor, to work this in us. So Lord, would you help us? Would you cause us to strive for holiness? We want your name to be praised in us. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.